You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Psalm 51. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. I know, I know things are kind of off, so, uh, but good evening. My name's Casey. I'm one of the pastors here. And, um, you know, kind of, you know, just some housekeeping. You know, we're, we're planned. The plan is that we'll keep meeting outside uh, through the month of October. And uh, we're working out a deal with another church to move inside November 1st. And, uh, you know, we need some feedback. And so if you look at the top of the liturgy, we have um, a place where you can take a quick survey. And we don't want you to take that survey over and over, but we want to offer it over and over because we want some feedback about kid stuff and moving inside. And there's a place for comments. And man, there's been some great comments. You know, one of them was like, let's keep meeting outside and we'll just get like 50 fire pits. And um, I mean, that, that's an idea. Uh, we could do that. But uh, we want some feedback, and we want, uh, as we look at this, as we move forward, we want to try to move forward as much together as we can. And so, I mean, that's our prayer, that's our heart, and that's what we're working toward. And, uh, you know, when we first started meeting outside, a, a lot's changed. You know, we, when we first started meeting outside, we were all wearing shorts, and everybody was fighting for the shade. And now uh, you're fighting for blankets and the sunshine. And, uh and so thus things change. You know, if you uh, are cold and you know someone next to you, you can snuggle with them. If you don't know them, that's going to be awkward, um, but whatever to survive. If you look down at verse 14, you see something of a connection between uh, the forgiveness of my sin and a song in my heart. Like it, it says, if you forgive me, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, if you forgive me, I will sing. And it's talking about a song that wells up from the inside, something that comes from this, that when I stand before a God forgiven, when I have connection with the God who made me, I have access to him, not by my works, but that he forgives and he works a plan of salvation for me, that a song can erupt out of my heart. It's like, do you 
sing? Does your heart sing? I didn't ask, can you sing? Not everybody can sing. I think everyone can probably get a little bit better. For some of us, it means you sing softer. Do you have a heart that sings? See, I'm, I'm loud, but I don't sing well at all, but I actually sing all the time. Like I, just around the house, I like to sing. And sometimes, you know, I, I'll sing worship songs that I've sung for a long time. I still get the words mixed up, but I always get the main theological point correct. I love to sing. But it's not a question of can you sing. It, it's not a question of like, do you sing? It's a question of, is your heart positioned before God in such a, there's a song inside of your heart that carries through difficult times and good times. Do you have a heart that sings? Psalms 51, it is the fourth of seven penitential psalms. You know, penitent meaning sorrow, Regret for having done something wrong. Seeking repentance. It's looking in a position that I have nothing to bring. And in repentance, I have everything to gain. Most people agree. I mean, you don't have to agree. But I would say out of the penitential Psalms, Psalms 51 is the greatest. Like It's hard for me to imagine the Psalms without Psalm 51. Like, look, look at it. Like, the Psalm 51, the writer wants you to know the occasion, the who and the what of why this psalm exists. And so look at Psalm 51. Before verse 1, you read this. To the choir master, a psalm of David. And so this is like, step aside, sons of Korah. We've had a lot of other, you know, Asaph, we've had a lot of other people sing, step aside. David has something to sing. And so it says this, to the choir master, a song of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. The psalmist wants us to know exactly why David wrote Psalm 51. And we can find this story in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 directly connected to a very specific moment in his life. Not a moment that he would want to brag about. Not a moment he would ever want to be caught in, but a specific moment. This is the gift of the scriptures that they don't clean it up for us to see. They, they work through it and we see God's amazing work in dark moments of our life. And so if you know the story, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, the, the chapter starts off and it says, you know, in the springtime when kings are at war. But yet we don't find David with his army encamped at war. We find David on the top of his roof. And on the top of his roof, he looks out and he sees Bathsheba bathing. He sees her. He, in that moment, he desires her. He decides that he must have her. And so then he goes and he finds a servant and he says, hey, who is that woman? I want her. And the servant says, isn't that Uriah the Hittite? Isn't that Uriah's wife? And there's so much with that name. Like, this is not the first time you would hear her, Uriah the Hittite. Like the servant says, isn't that Uriah the Hittite? Isn't that his wife? Isn't that Uriah, your friend? Isn't that Uriah, like your soldier who's fighting for you right now? Isn't that Uriah the Hittite? Isn't that the one, one of your 37 mighty men that's mentioned? And you could read about it in 1 Chronicles 11 or 2 Samuel 23. Isn't that one of the 37 guys? 
Isn't that his wife? Isn't it one of the guys that, while we were besieging Jerusalem, the Philistines had taken over, or I'm not sorry, Bethlehem. The Philistines had taken over Bethlehem. Isn't that one of the guys that just heard you say, faint from battle, say, man, I wish I had a cup of water from the well of Bethlehem. Isn't that one of the guys that fought through the line to get you a cup of water and then fight back to offer it to you? Isn't that Uriah's wife? Like there was no mistake about this wife not belonging to him. Isn't that Uriah's wife? But the servant got Bathsheba. David took Uriah's wife into his bed and then sent her home. And she later sends word to him, I'm pregnant. And so then the, the cover-up, it, it starts, and so he invites Uriah off the battlefield. He says, come and, and come give me a report about how the battle's going. And so he thinks, surely he'll come home, he'll take comfort in his house, take comfort in the arms of his wife, and then I'll be good. It'll be covered up. My sin will be hidden. No one will know. But Uriah comes home, gives report, and he doesn't go back inside his house. He sleeps in the front yard. And so the next night he says, well, I'll just get him drunk, you know, I'll get him drunk and then he won't do that. But he gives a response. He says, how can I go be with my wife when all my men are lying on the cold ground away from theirs? And so it fails again. And so when he fails to cover it up with trickery, he then conceives to cover it up with murder. And so David sends word to Joab that says, hey, put Uriah in the front in the very front center of the battle line, push close to the wall in the heat of the battle when he's exposed, pull back and let him fall. And Joab does it. We're told that then David brings Bathsheba into his house to comfort her. You see, he sinned, he covered it up with murder, and then he came out looking like the good guy, like I want to take care of my, my friend's wife, I'm going to provide for her. And it would have gotten away with it. David would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for the prophet of God, Nathan. And so Nathan, the prophet of God, he comes to David with a story, and this would be chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. And he tells a story, he says, David, there was this rich man, and this rich man had lots of sheep. And he, he came across a poor man who had one sheep, and that sheep was like a child to him, and he loved his sheep, and he cared for the sheep. And the rich man, what he does is he provided a banquet for this stranger walking through, but he feeds him his own sheep. And David, indignant with, with rage, says, you bring this rich man before me, and I will kill him. Which just for a side note, like the sin that you hide when it's faced with you publicly in the life of others, we have a tendency of being really dramatic against it. And so then we have the famous words of Nathan. Like he says, bring this rich man before me and I'll kill him at my feet. And he says, you are the man. I mean, you're the man. You took Uriah's wife and you had him murdered. You're the man. You thought it was hidden, but it's not hidden. God saw it. God of the universe, the God of perfect justice, the God who, who walked through you with all that trial that you had with Saul. God saw it. You're the man. See, this is the background of Psalms 51. And knowing the who 
and the what that is behind, behind Psalms 51. I pray that you don't dismiss the warning of this psalm with gradient excuses, excuses like I haven't murdered anyone or I haven't taken anyone's wife. I pray that you see the depth and the darkness of the sin that's not just in your hand, but the sin that is in your heart. I pray that you look at your sin and you're honest about it and you ask some important questions. You ask a question like this, if God can forgive a guilty David, can God forgive a guilty me? Or you ask a question like, how would my sins have piled up and are escaping the grip of my hands? How can God step in and forgive me? Or how can he restore me? How can I be made right? And I just want you to see it. It's actually all right here before us. From the depths of a broken, dark time in a man who's trying to chase after God's heart, who got led astray, who messed a lot of things up, we find penance. We find forgiveness. We find a singing heart. And so we're going to look at this just under three headings, and it's going to go pretty quick. I mean, quick for me anyways. And so... The first one is going to be confession, and then we're going to look at restoration, and then we're going to look at renewal. And so first, confession. Like we see, uh, like this talks about confession, seeing and confessing your sins. Like when we look at our sins, we're asking all kinds of questions. Like, does God have mercy for me and my sin? Can he do something about me and my sin problem? Can he do something about the sin that is entrapping around me? Or we might even ask this, is my sin even a big deal? And so we see these answered in verses one through five. Look, like this question, does God have mercy for me and my sin? Verse one, it says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Like David is asking for something very specific. The heart of David's cry is this, do you have mercy for me? Is there mercy within yourself, God? Is there room not to give me what I deserve? He isn't asking for grace. He's asking for mercy. I know what I deserve. Is there room within you that you don't have to give it to me? Like that's not just David, that is us. Like this is a cry of every sinner who actually looks at their sin and then looks to God. Like is there mercy inside of God for us? But this is a personal cry. See, if you're, if you're a Christian, this has to be, at some point, this has to be your cry. Like, like, God, is there mercy for me? Like, have mercy. And it says how, it doesn't say, hey, give me mercy according to me, or give mercy according to my past record, which is pretty good, or give me mercy according to like my like future strong determination not to do it again. It says, give me mercy according to your stead love. It's one word. It's hesed. It means your steadfast loving kindness, your covenantal love that you have made. You made a decision. Is there room within the covenant of God for mercy for me? This is not like a hypothetical question. It's not a mental theological exercise. It is a desperate cry when you see the sin in your heart or the sin at your hands and you look to a perfect God and you say, is there any room in you for me. See, the first question when we talk about confession is, does God have mercy for me? The second question is, can he do anything about it? 
Like, can God do anything about my sin? Can I actually go back to God? Like, look at the end of verse one. It says, according to your abundant mercy. And then look at all that it says. Can you blot out my transgressions? Wash me thoroughly from my iniquities and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Can you do something about the sin that has entrapped me, the sin that plagues my marriage or plagues my family, the sin that is always before me? Can you do something? And it is my sin. Like, look at all the me's and I's and my's. Like it says, blot out my transgression, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression, my sin is ever before me. Like he's not saying like, man, those circumstances were crazy. He's not saying, man, I mean, I was just walking on my roof and I mean, there she was. I mean, she was naked. I mean, she's not saying that. Like he's saying like the sin that is before me, my sin. You can't say, man, quarantine was stressful. Or or you can't say, man, homeschooling is hard. I had to learn long division again. And Mr. Nine, my math teacher, I know that's funny. Mr. Nine, my math teacher who said, hey, you got to know this because one day you won't have a calculator in your pocket. He is wrong. You can't say that. Like it's not that you can't say leadership is stressful. Or I was lonely. Or she was naked. He says, my sin. God, can you do anything for my sin? And you know, it really, in that, he uses three words for sin. And I don't think there's a whole lot to like, unpack in that. But I think it is just kind of using the, the little differences of the language is really helpful. Just kind of say, what am I dealing with? And so the, the three different words, the first one is pasta, which means rebellion. Like I see my sin is looking at a good God and saying, I don't care. God, can you do something for the rebellion in my heart? The second word is avon, which means the twisted or the bentness within me. Meaning like I look at what you say, but I'm looking for loopholes or ways around like the twisting nature within my heart or the pulling nature that always pulls me aside. I always like, I say I want to do right, but it always just pulls me aside. Like can you do something for that that is in me? Or just the, the word hata, which means missing the mark. No matter how hard I try, It's just never quite right. God, can you do something for that? Because I know I twist your words to suit me and I know I need to be cleansed because I can never seem to hit the mark and I know there's a rebellious nature inside my soul. I need you to fix my sin that is ever with me. Like Psalms 51, once you ask the question, Have you ever been haunted by a continual sin or a continual pull inside your soul and ever just wondered like, God, can you do something with that? Is there mercy inside of you for me? Does God have mercy for me? Can his mercy cover my sin? And then the next question might even be this, and sometimes we just deal with this, is it even a big deal? Is it even a big deal? How big of a deal is my sin? And this says it is darker and deeper than we know. Look look at verse four. It says, against you, 
You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And so I think this is saying that sin is darker than I know. And it's kind of controversial because like he says, God, against you and you only have I sinned. And it's not hard to make a list of some other people that he sinned against. Like, it's not hard to say, well, I don't know, man. I, I think you might have sinned against Uriah, your friend, when you stole his wife and then had him murdered. That's not a far, you know, horizontal reach. Or say, I don't know. I don't think it's that hard to make the connection that you obviously sinned against Bathsheba. I mean, at best, you led her into adultery. At worst, you raped her. You're the king. It's kind of hard to say no to the king. Or, or you could say, I don't think it's that hard to say that you sinned against your whole nation. You weren't where you were supposed to be. Like there's not that there's not a horizontal reach of my sin. It's that there has to be a moment when you said, before I did all of those things to the nation, before I did that to Bathsheba, before I did that to Uriah, before I did all of that, I mocked you, God, because you put me in those places and I mocked the kingdom that you drew me into. I mocked the kingdom of God. Like I looked at the horizontal relationship of those things and I didn't hold any of it. You see, kings are supposed to sacrifice for their people and I didn't do it. It wasn't worth my time. Or, or I would say, you know, uh, you know, maybe I would say it like this way, husbands are supposed to be faithful to their wives and yeah, it just didn't fit me. Or friends. Friends are supposed to respect the wives of their friends. Or, or maybe we could say this. Men are supposed to treat women as sisters. But in that moment upon the roof, she was an object. You see, the transition to say against you and you only have I sinned, it's not excusing those things he is seeing a darker deed within his sin. Sometimes we look at our sin and we're like, man, those consequences were crazy. Anybody reasonable would have been just like me. It is darker than you know. And then he's going to say this, it is deeper than you ever dreamed. Look at verse 5. It says this, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Like he's saying there are no excuses for David's sin because it wasn't the pressure of leading that caused it. At best, it was the weight of leading that might have exposed it. Like the bent nature of sin was always in him. It was always there. It was just the circumstances that exposed it. Like the stress of quarantine is not the cause. The mandate mask is not the cause. The loneliness of Zoom is not the cause. They are not the cause of your sin. They are only the occasion of your sin. David confesses that his sin is deeper than he knew. He sees that bentness going all the way back. He says it's darker than he realized. It's more damning than he could undo. Like he needs a God to wash it away. In the floods of his merciful, covenantal, loving kindness, he says, can you do something about my sin? And he confesses it. 
Like, I don't want you to miss that. He just, he confesses it. He didn't offer excuses. He confesses it. This is what it was. And it's actually worse than what I ever thought. It was in me. It came out of my heart. The first thing, seeing and confessing your sin. The second, confessing sin is not enough. Like, I need to be restored. You can't just stop at naming it. Like, I need God to do something for me. Look at verse 6. It says, Behold, you delight in truth, and in the inward being you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And this is just kind of saying God loves gut-honest truth. And you don't have to get it perfect. Like, God is not waiting for you, like, to dial in your confession. Like, just, like, honest truth. It's usually not hard. It's the thing you don't want to say. It's the thing you don't want to share. And you don't have to do it perfectly. Like, God loves gut honest truth about sin. Like, when you say, like, why do I keep doing that? God can lead you to understand the sin beneath your sin. God can lead you to understand the motives and wrong beliefs that drive the deeds of your hands. Like sin is deeper than what you can white knuckle through. God can help unlock that, but sometimes the the, the things lacking is not like you nailing it perfect. This is what it is. It's not like the introspection of like, oh, I knew what I was thinking. I knew what I was feeling. It's not saying, man, but they did this and it triggered that. It's not, you don't have to get it perfect, but typically it's just a thing on your heart that you just don't want to say. God loves that kind of honest reflection with him and with his people. And then look at it. It goes on, verse seven. Now we make all kinds of asks, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And so David starts to use some language here. Like the, the, the purge me, like David said, God, can you purge me? Some translations are going to say cleanse me, but literally it means unsend me. Do you have the antidote to my problem? Can you unsin me? And then it says hyssop, unsend me with hyssop. And David is looking at Exodus 12 when God's people were about to flee, about to be freed from their slavery. And they take the blood of the lamb with a hyssop branch and they spread it on their doorpost. And, you know, there's a lot of mystery in that. He's just saying, hey, whatever happened there, whatever was good enough to cover their sin to save them from death, could you do the same for me? Whatever that was. Is there room in your Hesed covenantal loving kindness? Is there room for that kind of restoration? And then he brings some of his own language in when he says, whiter than snow. Can you wash me so I'm whiter than snow? Like, this is his language brought in that I can't see that he's quoting that from anywhere else. But he's saying, is there a way that you can purify me and my heart? Can you wash me so that I can stand before you again? Now, now look at what David, he's going to ask a lot more. Look at verse 8. He says, can you wash me? Can you make me right? And then he says, let me hear joy and gladness that the bones that you have broken rejoice. Like he doesn't just say, I want entrance. He's like, can I have joy again? My sin is ever before me and it's haunting me. Can I have joy again? And then look at verse nine. He says, hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. I don't know how you do it. You know everything. You see everything. I thought I hid everything. And then you gave like Nathan a heads up. And then he tricked me with a little sheep story. And he said, aha, you're the one. Like, I don't know how you did that. 
Is there a way you can stop looking at it? Can you hide? Can you blot out? And then the ask keep getting bigger and bigger. Look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart. Oh God, and renew a right spirit with me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. There are so many phrases that we could pull apart and there's so many things that we could talk about. But just this, can you give me a new heart? Like the picture is like, I have ruined this one. Like I'm asking you to make it white again, like pure like snow. And all of a sudden I'm realized like it's not just something that's fixable. Like I need a new heart. The only way I can be made right before you is like heart surgery. That this heart is taken out and a new heart is put in. Like David's sin-tattered heart was not fixable. Your sin-tattered heart is not fixable. My sin-tattered heart is not fixable. The dark shadows of sin go all the way back to the womb. Like if you think you can undo your sin and that will fix you, you're wrong. It is deeper and darker than you realize. This is saying David in the moment when he's caught is saying this, nothing less than a new heart can save me. Nothing less than a new heart can restore me back to God. Nothing less than a new heart can bring joy and gladness back. And then he's going to say, nothing less than a new heart can make me sing again. First, it was confess. Then it was like, God, can you restore? Can you restore me? And then the incredible promises from 13 on of this renew. Like, look at this. Like, this renewal. Like, the truest test of forgiveness of sin, I think this is saying is a singing heart. A heart that's new and that can sing. Like, confessing sin in a self-saving effort. Like, I'm just going to do better and I'm not going to do that again. Like, shame on me. Like, that kind of confession will only result in you hating you. And you can't hate you enough to save you. But confessing sin in hope of God's restoring and renewing power will result in you hating sin and singing to God. Like they are so different. Like they can sound the same because you and I, we might confess the same sin, but there's a totally different transaction. If you are trusting in the confession and then I confess it, I'm going to do better and I won't do that again. You're just going to hate you. And so look look at what it says in verse 13. It says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. Like we had to make up a word there. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. Oh God, oh God, my salvation. And this talks about a new nature when you get a new heart. Like all of a sudden when you get a new heart and a new nature, like you're able to talk about your failings in a way that express joy and thankfulness because the forgiveness that you received from the Hesed, ever loving kindness of God that was wrapped up within him. see, 
where it says right here, like, then I will teach transgressors, transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. This is what the New Testament loves to talk about, your testimony. When you can not take credit for your salvation, I, mean, I was so clever and hell sounded bad, so I wanted to go to heaven. Like, not taking credit for your salvation of like, I brought God my sin. That's what I had for him. I brought him my shame. Like I said, this is what my life was like. This is what it, I did. This is where I was found. And all of a sudden, God uses those things to teach people about salvation. I will tell others of my weakness because of your strong salvation. Like that's what teaching transgressors your ways and being free from blood guilt from this heart transplant. That's what it does. Look at verse 14. It goes on to say this. And my tongue will sing. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. The hallmark evidence for a sinner saved by grace is a heart that can sing. Can your heart sing? You know, it, it goes on, it says, for you do not delight in sacrifices or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. And the idea is, or I would bring it. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Can your heart sing? If you can't, I'm afraid you're still trying to just fix your broken heart with effort. Can your heart sing? If you bring to God not your best effort, but your uncertainty, your sadness, your insecurities, if you're willing to confess and give those things to God, this says, that's a broken and contrite spirit. This says, the last four words, you will not despise. He will not despise them. He will take them and give your heart a song. And there's just one more thing I want to point out. Because there's this weird transition. We go from 17 to verses 18 and 19. Look at what happens there. It says, all of a sudden, he just kind of this, this kind of bottom level of like, God, I, I, I don't have enough sacrifices to bring you. You wouldn't take that anyways. Like, I don't have enough burnt offerings to bring you. You wouldn't take that anyways. But you won't ever despise someone who brings a broken heart. You won't ever despise that. Like, it just kind of stops there. And then we have this like editorial moment where it says, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Like, that's kind of weird. Like this moment of like personal deep brokenness. And then it's this editorial that kind of talks about the whole nation as itself. Like it was personal sin being confessed. And then it talks about the walls of Jerusalem being built. And I just want to ask this question. What happens to a nation if a king won't repent? I don't know what happened to this nation when friends were murdered and wives were taken and he's saying like unrepented sin in that place, like what happens, walls crumble. It seems to be talking about like my personal sin, refusing to repent for my personal sin has an effect on people around me. A devastating effect. It seems to be saying that my unrepentant sin will hurt 
more than just me. It will hurt those that I love and those who are around me. And my self-help that I could Google all over the internet, the World Wide Web has a lot of it. All the practices that I could do and all the plans that I could make, they can't hold the destruction power of sin back. This seems to say that you risk more than your pride by not having a repentant heart. And then I just want to ask this question. How is it possible that God can do this? And let me just answer all of it. Look, look, look back at verse 9. How can God hide his face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities? On the cross, Jesus took my sins. He, he took my sin entries and he gave me his righteous credit. He gave me credits of his righteousness. How can my sins be blotted out? Jesus. Or, or, or look at verse 10. How can God create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me? On the cross, Jesus took my sinful heart and he gave me his pure heart. My heart would do no longer, but his heart was perfect. And so it's like white as snow. He placed it in. Or verse 11. How? How can God cast me not away from his presence and take not his Holy Spirit from me? On the cross, Jesus lost his union with the Holy Spirit and was cast away from the Father so I could be brought in. Or verse 12. How can God restore to me the joy of his salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit? On the cross, Jesus willingly took on sorrow to give me joy. Or we could look at verse 14. How can I have a tongue that sings, mouths that declare? On the cross, Jesus lost his words because he took his last breath. So you could have a heart that sings through no through no through whatever. The hallmark thing that can't be faked, like it might be faked on the outside. The hallmark point of salvation for God's people is a sustaining melody in the heart that only the Spirit of God can give. Can you sing? How can a just God do all of that? Verse 9, Jesus. Verse 10, Jesus. Verse 11, Jesus. Verse 12, Jesus. Verse 14, Jesus. Can you sing? Let me pray for us. Um, Father, Lord, we can uh, fake singing with loud voices. Lord, we can hide sin um, until it escapes the grip of our hands. Lord, we can act like these are personal choices that are caused by circumstances. Lord, we can tell ourselves all kinds of things, but the scriptures tell us that it is my sin, and the question that we have to ask, is there room within the covenantal, steadfast, always loving heart of God, is there room for mercy for a sin sinner like me? May I, I invite you, when I say amen, I invite you to sing and there's going to be, uh, we'll have people on either side just to pray. And there's even kind of a, a scary thing on that. Like, 
You might be praying for something else where you're like, oh my gosh, man, if I go up there and pray, what will people think I'm, you know, is going on in my life? Don't worry about them. Like if there is something that's plagued you or something that you want God to step in, like this is an opportunity to maybe pray with the person beside you or maybe come forward and just have someone pray for you. But this is an opportunity for us to try out our singing hearts that we can say because of the covenantal love of God, that there is mercy within the nature of God for me, that if I bring my sorrow and my sadness and my brokenness and my sin, I can have a singing heart. Heart. It's a promise of God, and we want to take him at his promises. If you want that, you have to answer all those questions. How can God do it? Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Father, Lord, we love you and we need you. I pray that you would help us sing. In Jesus' name, amen.